Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Undefined Gen, a podcast about young people doing awesome things. I'm your host, Marissa Comstock. You can find us at theundefinedgen.com with links to Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And as always, comment, like, and share, and leave a review on iTunes. Also, if anyone knows anyone who's doing something super cool and you think that I should interview them, email me at marissa at undefinedgen.com and let me know. This week, I talked to my friend Mara Kubrin. She is a speech-language pathologist currently working at a rehabilitation center with elderly people, helping them recover speech and language skills, as well as teaching them how to swallow. I was so excited to do this interview because I hadn't done an episode about healthcare yet, and there's so much to learn about healthcare and so many aspects of healthcare that you would never even think about, like the importance of teaching people how to swallow. Mara has done so much work with people and knows a ton about different types of therapy, including therapy for kids with autism, who she worked with before she went to school for her master's in speech language pathology. So this episode, first we talk about our work at our current rehabilitation center with elderly, and then we talk about our work with kids with autism and how she used ABA therapy. Finally, we'll talk about an app that Mara worked on with Smile Train to help children around the world with cleft palates learn to speak properly. I hope you learn a lot. Let's get started. My name is Mara. I am a speech language pathologist. Yeah, so to start, you're a speech-language pathologist. Yes. Um, what is speech-language pathology? Speech-language pathology um, is a kind of therapy that helps to rebuild or rehabilitate or teach speech, language, and swallowing skills to people who either didn't have them the way that they normally would have or who have lost them from an injury. So speech-language pathologists can work in the schools with little kids who can't say sounds properly or who have autism or who stutter. And then speech-language pathologists can also work with the elderly who have had a stroke or Parkinson's or any number of other health issues. And then currently you're working at a rehabilitation center and working with um, elderly, correct? And now can you walk me through like a day-to-day? What are your responsibilities? Yeah, so one of the things I like is that day-to-day can change a lot. So my caseload is constantly changing. Um, The facility that I work at, I work at two right across the street from each other, and we have some patients who are short-term, so maybe they broke their hip, maybe they um, are going to be going home with services at home. So some people are there for only two weeks or a month or a few months. Some people are there long-term. So they don't really have anywhere else to go. They need some medical support, and they're there indefinitely. Um, But in terms of my day-to-day, I get there. I look at my schedule. um, I see patients for anywhere between 25 minutes and 60 minutes for a session. Um, The people who are working on swallowing, I try to see them at mealtime. So lunchtime, I try and get everyone into the dining room and watch them and teach them some strategies and make sure that they're being safe. And then people who are working on speech, language, and cognitive issues, I can see throughout the day, usually in their room. Um, 
but I'll kind of make morning rounds, so I'll check on the menu, I'll go see all of my patients and I'll say, this is what they're serving for lunch, would you like to change that, would you like to try a different texture, if that's one of the things we're working on, um, and kind of orient them so some of them might not know what day it is, might not know where they are, so I'll kind of cover that in the morning rounds, and then, um, I do my lunch is kind of my busiest time and then I do afternoon is more like the language and the communication and the cognitive therapy and then I usually switch buildings to cover the other one across the street for the rest of the day and then throughout the day whenever there's kind of a lull and I can't see anyone either everyone's asleep or people are in physical therapy then I'll take care of paperwork which is unfortunately a big part of the job. Mm -hmm. As far as your strategies for helping people learn how to swallow what are some of the methods? So um, it's actually pretty basic for the most part. Some of the most common strategies we'll tell people is slow down, take small bites and sips, alternate liquids and solids, swallow hard. So that's just thinking about all the muscles in your throat that are squeezing to move the food down anyways, but trying to squeeze them a little bit extra, and then sitting upright instead of laying back. So those are like the most common ones. Then if you have a stroke and one side of your body is paralyzed, there's different movements you can do. So you can rotate your head to one side, you can tilt your head to one side, or you can tuck your chin down and that helps to open it up and make sure that the food is going down the right way. Well, that seems so opposite of what you would think to tuck your chin. Yeah. And then a lot of what we're doing is different textures and consistencies. So, um, for solid foods, you have regular texture, which is what we all eat. Then you have mechanical soft, where it's already chopped up a bit. And then you have pureed, which is baby food, basically. Um, for liquids, you have regular water, which moves pretty quickly. And then you have nectar-thick liquids, which are thickened to the consistency of nectar. And they move a little bit slower, so they're easier to control. And the body has a little bit more time to move it in the right way. And then beyond that is honey-thick liquids, which are even thicker. Beyond that is pudding-thick liquids, so it's like water that you have to eat with a spoon. People don't like it. Mm -hmm. People say really funny things when they're mad at us for putting <laughs> them on different consistencies. I had a friend who said one of her patients looked at her and said, how do you sleep at night? Because she was putting her on pureed food and thickened liquids. And, like, no 80-year-old wants to eat baby food. They want to eat real food. Um but it's about balancing their desires and their quality of life with risks and safety. Do most people, once they reach a certain age, they're going to have trouble swallowing anyway? Or are these are people who've, like, gone through a specific medical thing and have lost that ability? So most people will have a little bit of degeneration, like the muscles aren't necessarily as strong. Or even my parents, I get on their case because they'll be talking with their mouth full and, like... I just start to notice certain things like, Dad, slow down, take a sip, take a breath. <laughs> like, if you're trying to talk while you still have a bunch of food in your mouth, you're more likely to inhale some of that food. And what we are trying to avoid as speech pathologists is food or bacteria getting into the lungs and giving you pneumonia. Because especially if you're oh. already really old, pneumonia can definitely kill you. So if you already have a weakened immune system, if you're already struggling with various medical conditions, and then you also inhale some food and it gets infected in your lungs, that's a bad thing. So working on the strategies and changing the consistencies helps reduce that risk. Um, but most of the patients who are getting therapy where I work have had some sort of like 
actual medical issue, whether it's a stroke, sometimes they have Parkinson's, sometimes they just don't have any teeth anymore, um, or they only have a few teeth left, and so then I need to see whether they can still chew enough to swallow safely, and you'd be surprised what people can do with their gums, <laughs> but, like, I have to see whether they're doing that or whether they're, like, there's noodles hanging around in their gums after they're done that they're not even aware of, because that's not safe. And as far as the methods that you use to teach people, are these things that have been around forever? Are there, are there like, papers that you read to find new strategies to get people to do these things? Or there, We're constantly doing research. So in grad school, we had to study about evidence-based practice and what the research has shown to, to actually help. Um, I don't know how long some of the strategies have been around. I'm not good with dates. But... There's been some interesting research recently about, okay, so there's also a difference between compensatory strategies, that's like in the moment, if you do this, it'll make it safer right now, versus rehabilitation, which is over time, if you do these exercises, you will get stronger and it will be safer. So a lot of the research has been looking at rehabilitation, so certain strengthening exercises that you can do. One of them is the Shakir exercises, and like you're laying down on your back and you kind of practice tucking your chin up. And that helps strengthen the muscles in your neck and helps move the food down the right way. Um, but we also have to take continuing education courses to keep our licenses. So that's where you kind of stay up to date on current research and then also on your own time and talking to colleagues. Colleagues are super helpful. I'll talk to them about what they're doing and what they've learned about recently. When you did your master's, you were mostly taking classes in um, speech pathology or like the speaking part of it. It was, it was everything. So one distinction is there's speech and there's language. Speech is how it comes out of your mouth. Language is kind of the way it's formulated in your brain. Mm -hmm. So depending on what kind of impairment you have, you might be able to formulate the thoughts in your brain. You might have a full sentence in there, but you can't get it out the right way. Or you might be able to understand but not speak. Or you might not be able to understand, but you can speak. So there's all these different ways that speech, language, cognition, and swallowing can get impaired depending on where your injury in the brain was. So if you have a stroke, you look at where the stroke was, what kind of stroke it was, how quickly they got medical attention, and based on all of those factors, and also age, based on all of those factors, the person will present in a variety of different ways. And then they recover. Um, the brain is miraculous. It heals itself really well, but it's our job to help facilitate that by challenging them and asking the right questions and also just kind of giving them some skills in the meantime while they're recovering. So if you have someone who understands everything but can't get a word out, that's really isolating and it can be really depressing. So one of the things we'll do is we'll teach them other strategies like pointing to pictures to communicate or using an iPad to communicate until hopefully their speech recovers. As far as what you're doing right now uh, with speech language therapy, uh, what are some of the most common things that you see? Mm, dementia. Mm -hmm. um, so people who have lost their orientation. One of the things that we'll do a lot is just working on remembering what day of the week it is, remembering where they are, remembering who they are, and there's a progression. So most people remember who they are, even if they've lost everything else. Most people can kind of remember where they are in like a general sense. So like, I'm in California, or I'm in Marin County. 
but then it's like, okay, well, what kind of facility are we in? One guy recently was like, I don't like this hotel. Can you take me to another one? <laughs> so it's like he had lost his orient orientation to a specific place. Um, and we worked on that. So I'd start giving him cues like, okay, well, what, where are we? What do you usually do here? Oh, I usually eat here. Yeah. So if you usually eat here, what kind of place is this? Oh, it's the dining room. Um, or working on what kind of therapy do you receive here? What is your recent medical history? Why am I talking to you? Um, and then everyone forgets the date eventually, especially in a place like a nursing home where most of the days are the same. So we'll work on strategies like, okay, well, you have a calendar. Let's look at the calendar. We can cross out the days that have already happened or let's look for cues in the environment. Oh, they're playing Christmas music. That means it's probably December or there are hearts all over the windows. That means it's February. Um, so dementia is definitely common. And then... When you've had a stroke, then you lose the ability to speak a lot, depending on what part of the brain was impaired. So um, practicing naming and word finding, practicing the ability to answer questions consistently. Um, so one of my patients now, she understands. She isn't talking, but she's beginning to answer questions. So I'll point to pictures of her family members and I'll ask her to identify who they are by giving her either a choice or by asking her yes, no questions. And she can shake her head, she can nod her head, and that's a huge step. Now she can tell us what's going on with her if we phrase it in the right way. If you ask her an open-ended question, you won't get the answer. But if you either give her a yes, no question, or you give her a couple choices, then she could like point to select, or she can shake her head or nod her head. Mm -hmm. So that is... She's one of my favorites right now. She's very Aww. interesting. And she's, you can, you can tell that they're getting frustrated and sad. I mean, I've kind of joked around to do this job well. I would need a degree in social work and family therapy and nutrition and psych and nursing because there's a lot to it, but it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, it sounds just very, like, everyday you're using your intuition, you're improving with them. It's like, you don't, you must not know from day to day, like what exactly you're going to be talking about with each of yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. It depends. Um, yeah. And you form these relationships with people and sometimes they're only there for a short amount of time. And sometimes you're working with them for a very long time and you get to know their families and you have to educate their families on what's going on. And it's, it's a balance of, telling them the reality of the situation, but also helping them remain hopeful and giving them some coping strategies. And there's also resources available for co-survivors. So the wives or the husbands or the children of people who have had a stroke, it can be really hard on them too. And so that's part of my job is to work with them and reassure them that they'll recover, but also not be dishonest about the reality of it. Mm -hmm. How did you get into speech language pathology? It's kind of one of those things where looking forward a long time ago, I had no idea, but looking back, it all makes sense. Um, so I was always interested in language and music. Um, I was always into people. Um, I liked patterns. In undergrad, I started off as a psych major, took an intro to linguistics class, and fell in love with it and decided to switch my major to linguistics. 
um, and I loved it. It was super interesting. I always looked forward to going to class. I had no idea what I was going to do with it, but I wasn't really thinking about that at the time. Um, while in school, I also worked for Jumpstart, which is an AmeriCorps program that matches college students with preschool kids in neighboring areas that have fallen behind. So Jumpstart does a lot of training. Um, they give the college students a lot of resources and session plans and materials. And then twice a week, the college students go in and do a whole afternoon of activities for these partner children that have been identified as being uh, behind. And you work with the same child the entire year. So I did that for three years in college and really loved it. I saw like the progress you can make and the change you can create in a child if you're patient and creative and motivated. After college, um, I got a job doing autism therapy, behavior therapy with autistic kids because of that preschool experience and the linguistics, which was kind of related. So I did that for a while, learned a lot, really liked it, but working in special ed without a master's degree, you're not really making a living wage in San Francisco where mm -hmm. the rents are high. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of knew I had to go get a master's to make it. And it was about, do I want to do a teaching credential or psych or speech? And speech had always been what I thought I would end up doing. Um, it's more one-on-one. -on -one. I feel like there are less variables to try and navigate. So my dad was a teacher. My mom was a social worker. And both of them, I feel like they had a hard time remaining positive because it's hard to see progress. And then you end up burning out. And I wanted to avoid that. I also wanted job security, so that was part of it. Speech, you can work in a variety of settings. You can do a private practice. You can work in the schools. You can work in the hospitals. You can work in rehab settings, and there are a lot of jobs. So I thought I'll probably end up back in special ed, but if not, there's a lot of flexibility in kind of your hours and your lifestyle and who you work with. Um, then I went to grad school, and now I'm doing it. Next, we're going to get into Mara's work before her master's. She worked with children with autism doing ABA therapy. She'll also weigh in on her fears about the potential repeal of the Affordable Care Act. I would love to talk a little bit about um, the work you did with um, kids with autism as mm -hmm. well. Like, um, There's also a lot of different type of therapies that you have to know to work with those kids. Can you talk about some of the ones that you used at the program? Yeah, so I did applied behavior analysis and it's a pretty rigid, structured way of therapy that works really well with kids who thrive on structure. So a typically developing kid is able to learn in a less structured environment. In regular classrooms, they can absorb things, they aren't necessarily going to be as sensitive to background noises or to lights or to their own sensations in their body. So typically developing kids can thrive in a regular classroom. Kids with autism need it to be more focused. They need their instruction to be more individualized, and they need learning opportunities to be more contrived. So what applied behavior analysis does is you use a very specific stimulus, then you wait for the kid's response, and then based on their response, you either reinforce it or you correct it. So it's based on like classical conditioning psychology, which 
most people think is too rigid, but for some kids with autism, it really works. So we would work on programs related to their individualized education plans. That's their special ed document that plans out what their goals are and marks their progress. Um, we would work on language. We would work on self-help skills like bathing and, well, not really bathing. Yeah, washing hands, going to the bathroom, getting dressed fine motor skills, gross motor skills, basically anything that they need to be able to succeed in school, we worked on that in a very structured setting after school in their home. Um, and then some kids really needed a reinforcement, like an M&M. So it's like kind of like training a dog, unfortunately. And some kids were more social, and so you could just be really excited and really animated with them, and that would be their reinforcement for learning these skills. Um, and then we also worked in the classrooms to shadow kids and help them succeed in the school environment and help generalize what we were teaching them at home to the setting where they were actually learning from their teachers. And you mentioned fine and gross motor movement. What does that mean? So fine motor is going to be like using your finger to pick up a pencil or using your finger to zip up your jacket. Smaller movements that have to be more precise. Gross motor would be like walking up the stairs or standing on one foot or um, jumping off of like catching a ball. It's kind of bigger movements that use more of your whole body. Mm -hmm. And most of these kids were also getting physical therapy and occupational therapy at school and we would overlap with those therapists and collaborate a little bit. So if the physical therapist had written goals for gross motor, we would still try and practice that at home because we had that really structured way of doing things. Mm -hmm. And is the difficulty for them in, in mastering different types of movement just like they can't focus on it? Or why are those things that they have to work on? Um, I don't really know. I think some of the kids just had low tones, so they just didn't develop muscle the same way. Okay. Um, and some of them weren't as coordinated. Some of them weren't necessarily understanding what they were supposed to do. So they don't pick up on things the same way that we would. We understand that we have to walk upstairs and we want to play with other kids. And so we're motivated to catch a ball and to ride a bike. Mm -hmm. But some of these kids were very much in their own world. And so they were more content playing by themselves or looking at things that they were interested in. Um, and so they, they didn't learn things as naturally and we had to kind of structure it so that they would learn those things. Mm -hmm. I, I was, I was reading about the therapy a little bit and I did see like online, there's some criticism of it for like, like you said, for being too rigid. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah. So I think in a lot of different therapies, there's a new, I don't know how new, but we want it all to be client-centered or patient-centered. So it's better if the person receiving the therapy has some control in how it's done and it's based more on their interests and what they would choose to be doing. Um, ABA is very structured and we have table time and floor time and we have these different activities and the therapists are very much controlling how things go. Um, there's a new autism therapy, the Early Start Denver model that takes some of the philosophies of ABA, but it's more child-centered. 
So based on what the child is gravitating towards in a room full of toys, that's where you do the therapy as opposed to setting down your toy in front of the child and saying, this is what we're doing now. Um, and then, yeah, it's, it's weird to try and train a child like a dog. It's weird to use gummy bears to teach them how to answer the question, what's your name? But it kind of works. And mm -hmm. some of the kids really thrived on it. I had one kid and his mom caught him practicing ABA in his sleep. Like, running the programs in his oh sleep, God. which yeah. was wild. Um, but you really do see progress. And I think for some of the kids, unless you really do structure it and practice it and contrive those learning opportunities, they might just not learn those skills. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I really appreciated, my boss admitted to me, ABA is not for every child. And I appreciated that someone who had made her entire career out of this kind of therapy acknowledge that it's not going to work for everyone and it's not going to be the best for everyone and that's okay but for some kids it really does help and I, you mentioned it before when you were talking about your patients that you're working with now it's just like you know when people can't do what they want to do and they can't communicate it's very frustrating so I imagine any program that gives like helps people communicate at all yeah um you know it, it relieves it some opens, of the frustration yeah, yeah it opens up different doors for them and it's interesting the overlap between the young and the elderly. Um, one field or one area of specialty in speech pathology is augmentative alternative communication. So that's using technology to communicate. And that can be low tech like pictures where you pass someone a picture of a gummy bear if you want a gummy bear and then you get that gummy bear. But that's when you don't have the words. You can still look at pictures and still communicate with someone in that way. And then you have high tech, which is using applications on an iPad, um, and you can select with pictures or you can also select with words. But for some kids that don't learn to speak, the technology that has been created allows them to still have language and to still have communication with the outside world. Um, and then I'm doing the same thing with the elderly who have had a stroke, and it's about kind of figuring out what's going to work in the meantime. Um, and some people end up using AAC for a very long time, and that works for them, and it's not what they used to have, but it works. And then for the little kids, I think a lot of parents are concerned, oh, if we start using technology, they're not going to learn to speak, and they'll get used to that, and so they, they won't be as motivated to learn to speak naturally. But research has shown that the opposite is true, and if they start to learn, oh, I can interact with someone and communicate with them, and they can understand me, and then I get what I want, then they end up learning to speak as well a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. um, so that's interesting for me. Actually, I remember I used to go to this computer graphics conference, and they have this uh, floor where they have all these different technologies and people, a lot of researchers from different universities, and so it's like, it's mostly animation stuff, but they mm -hmm. have a lot of people from the medical field who have different apps that they're creating to help people, um, and I remember there was this one for, I think it was for stroke victims, and it was like, you move, it was a VR headset, and so it's like, you move around, and you do things like get mail, and like, Whoa. stuff like that, like, just like, reteaching them, yeah. those things. Just, functional skills, like, yeah. everything should be functional, everything should be relevant to what you would actually be doing when you went home or in your daily life. Mm -hmm. But that's cool to use the VR stuff. There's also been, I think when the Wii first came out, nursing homes were one of the biggest mark, um, one of the biggest markets because the elderly liked 
playing tennis or doing those different mm-hmm. activities and it was a way to make them more motivated to participate in physical therapy. That's really cool. So in your in your actual practical experience you've seen technology help people. Absolutely. Yeah. Are yeah. there any programs that um, you're excited about coming out or that you use day to day? The program I'm most familiar with is called Proloquo. Um, and it can be used with little kids or the elderly. Um, and you select pictures and then it forms the sentences for you. And then it's a dynamic setup. So you can have folders and there's different layers. It's not just one screen with all of your choices. So if you have a folder for foods, you can click on that and then it opens up like fruits, vegetables, drinks, whatever. And then you can have a folder of body parts and you can start talking about something in pain or something that you want taken care of. You can have um, different activities. So I want to listen to music or um, I want the newspaper, different things like that. But the iPad can be really helpful for people. Um, One issue with that is funding. So Mm -hmm. convincing insurance companies to buy people iPads is a challenge. Um, and oftentimes the burden is just placed on the family to buy that and the apps can be really expensive too. So that's hard, but it really can serve a really helpful purpose. That's actually, yeah, I thought the funding aspect of it is, is I wanted to ask with, um, specifically kids with autism because it's ABA's Mm one-on-one, right? So are there enough people doing that for the number of kids who have autism? Because that seems like one person per child. Yeah. So... In San Francisco, the school district has a team specifically for preschool kids with autism and included in the annual meeting to determine services for that child. Sometimes ABA services are offered as part of that whole legal agreement. So here are the goals that we've established for the child. In order for that child to meet those goals, we are offering this amount of one-on-one therapy Um, or this amount of therapy in the school setting to help support them. After preschool, some schools still offer that kind of support, um, but it usually tends to fade as the kid gets older, and Mm -hmm. when they're really young, that's kind of when they thrive the most on that structure. And the idea is to use the structure to teach them those kind of learning-to-learn skills so that they won't need it to be as structured in the future so that they'll be able to access the curriculum in a school setting, so that they'll be able to succeed even in a special ed classroom or mainstreaming to a general ed classroom. There's also insurance funding. So when I first got out of college, my first job was working for an agency that got funding from insurance companies. So if a child has a medical diagnosis of autism, insurance can sometimes cover that kind of therapy. Some kids don't have the medical diagnosis. It's kind of separate, like medical versus education. But it can be covered by the schools or it can be covered by insurance companies. And then with the elderly where I'm working now, most of our funding is from Medicare um, or insurance companies. But that's my least favorite part of my job is, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, um, the amount of time that someone gets therapy for has more to do with their insurance than what their actual needs are. Mm -hmm. So sometimes insurance will stop covering it after a certain amount of time, or sometimes they'll only cover a very short session. And then it's also shared with physical therapy and occupational therapy. So if a patient is getting all three, then each one is going to be for a shorter amount of time. 
Um, and that's the way it is. But ideally, everyone would just get as much service as they needed to mm -hmm. fully recover to their maximum potential. And so far, that's not always what happens. Maybe to get political for one second, are you at all worried about the repeal of the Affordable Care Act? Is that going to affect you? Yeah. Actually, when I was interviewed at the March, I said the two fields I could work in with this degree is education and healthcare, And those are two fields that could be devastated by the wrong person being in leadership or funding getting taken away. So um, I'm definitely worried if they started to cut Medicare, that would absolutely affect um, the patients that I see and the amount of services that they receive and the way that my facilities run. It's yeah, yeah, education too. I mean, if if public schools lose funding, I mean, I I'm trying to empathize with the other side, and I'm mm -hmm. trying to understand why it makes sense to offer more school choice and to offer vouchers to allow people to choose where they go, and the whole charter school idea is okay, more say and more choice and more individualized ways to run schools but at the same time one of the big issues with charter schools and with private schools is they don't have to take special needs kids um so if we start privatizing public education what's going to happen to all the kids with special needs and kids with disabilities who need these services and then we're going to lose funding because kids are going elsewhere mm -hmm. so that scares me Finally, we're going to talk about Mara's work with Smile Train. Smile Train is an organization that works to help children around the world born with a cleft palate. Mara worked on their new app, which will help children with speech impediments due to the cleft palate. And then kind of to um, go back to the technology side of things, like I'd love to hear about the app that you worked on for, what was it called? Smile, Smile Train. Smile Train is an organization that helps fund cleft palate repair surgeries around the world. And there's a few different organizations that try to do this. Smile Train's approach is instead of just flying in American doctors for two weeks to do a marathon of surgeries and then leave, they partner with local medical professionals and give them extra support and give them extra funding and training and try and establish something more sustainable around the world. So they've partnered with surgeons and hospitals all over the place and they help provide surgeries for free for kids born with cleft palates. Um, but one of the problems with that is if kids have had um, structural abnormalities for long enough, they learn to speak with weird habits. Um, so basically, if you can't seal off your mouth properly, you start sealing it off lower down in your throat, um, and you start talking with, I'm trying to think of like layman's terms, um, they, they don't learn to talk correctly. There's a normal progression of how kids learn to produce sounds. And if you have a cleft palate, you won't usually learn those sound productions properly. So the issue was they were coming in, they were repairing the cleft palate, which is the structure, but the kids still weren't speaking properly because they had learned all of these bad habits. Mm -hmm. And Smile Train decided to start doing speech therapy as well. But in a lot of places around the world, there aren't trained speech therapists available or a lot of the kids live in poverty or they live in rural areas and they don't have access to those kinds of services. 
and Smile Train decided to develop an app that would help with speech therapy. So they first made one in Spanish and they worked with a speech pathologist in Mexico City to develop an app based on some programs that she had been doing um, and it used songs and animations and rhymes and games that kids could do with their parents or speech therapists who didn't necessarily have as much training could do as a kind of guide. Um, so my role was to take the Spanish app and help develop it into English and adapt the materials for English um, for a new app. And it wasn't the technology side of things. It was more the content and the creative side of things. But it wasn't just a direct translation because part of the idea of speech therapy with kids who have had cleft palates is isolating those sounds that they couldn't say properly mixed with sounds that are easier for them to say. So there's high pressure sounds and low pressure sounds. Um, high pressure sounds are going to have more air kind of exploding out of your mouth. So like when you say a P, like you have to build up all this air inside of your mouth and then you release it all at once. <laughs> Um, if you have a hole in the roof of your mouth, all of that air you're trying to build up is going to escape through your nose. And that's what happens with a cleft palate is they can't say the sounds because they can't build up enough pressure. Um, so the idea with the app was to write little fun stories and songs and games where you would have words with just P and then so sounds that are much easier to say like L or R or vowels or M and N. Those are all nasal M and N are nasals, so that means the air is coming up through your nose. If you have a hole in the roof of your mouth, that doesn't matter for sounds where the air is coming up through your nose anyways. So it's not just translation, you have to like really figure out how to isolate certain sounds so that they can practice it a lot and learn how to say it properly once their mouth is closed. Mm -hmm. Did that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's super interesting. Um, oh, there was just a question I was going to ask, uh, teaching these kids. Um, so it's like this, the therapy for this app is done after the surgery or this is the type of thing that they should start while they have the cleft palate. It can be done either way. So it's mm -hmm. better if kids can get some speech therapy even before the cleft is closed because then they can even, they, they can start to, they can start learning the place of articulation. So where their mouth is supposed to be, what their mouth is supposed to do. And it won't necessarily sound correct until their cleft is closed, but it's better to kind of break those bad habits early. Mm -hmm. So there's even a move, there's been this debate between speech therapists and surgeons and dentists because speech therapists want the surgeries to happen as early as possible so that the kids can learn the speech sounds naturally as they develop. But then it becomes more complicated because sometimes they'll need secondary surgeries or if they seal it too early, then their teeth will get all messed up and so then it's harder for the dentist to fix later. Mm -hmm. um, but speech therapists kind of won and so they're doing this, the surgeries a lot earlier when they have access to services. So in this country, babies are getting surgery. But around the world, especially if there's stigma about disability, sometimes the parents won't even seek medical attention because they're ashamed or there isn't medical attention to be had. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the kids can definitely benefit from speech therapy before it's sealed uh, just to learn like, okay, even if you can't produce the sound cor correctly, even if you can't build up that pressure right now, let's still teach you where your tongue is supposed to be or what your lips are supposed to do. 
I lost your question. So, um, yeah, you've, you've worked with so many people throughout your career, children, you're working with elderly people now. Has there been any um, experiences that have been particularly rewarding? Yeah. Um, I've recently started collecting quotes from my patients because they're those. just so <laughs> funny. And some people find them really morbid or sad, but I think that's a matter of perspective. And if you can't find the humor in it, then um, it's just going to be harder. And so, like, I just, I find so many things funny. Um, And then one of the biggest differences between working with children and working with adults is the adults can be so grateful if they understand what you're trying to do. Most of the kids with autism, they just thought you were playing with them. And because they're not as inherently social and motivated to interact with other people, that was half of the job was just trying to get them to engage. And with the elderly, if they understand what you're trying to do, they can be more motivated to participate and more grateful. And um, you can really see progress and then they get even more appreciative when they start seeing progress. So that's just, that's really nice. And working with the families is really special. And they're just, they've got such character. These people have lived so much life and they are who they are and getting to know them is just really interesting and they're funny and some of them are just really blunt. Um, they're going to be some of the quotes that you posted recently. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I was inter- I was evaluating a guy who had left the hospital on a puree diet, which is again, the baby food. So I have to decide in my evaluation, do I agree with what the hospital discharged him on or do I think he's ready for something more challenging or sometimes the opposite? They discharged him on regular. Do I think he needs something less challenging? So I'm interviewing, I'm evaluating him and I say, do you have your own teeth? Can you chew well? And he goes, lady, I am from Africa. I eat bones. (laughs) And sure enough, like, He did not need to be on puree. I worked with him for a little while just to make sure that he was safe, but now he's, like, eating everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Another guy said to me, you want to know the secret to longevity? When Jesus calls, don't answer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's a life lesson right there. Life lessons, yeah. They're full of just these, like, nuggets of wisdom. Um, One woman... She was kind of talking to herself, and I went over and I said, are you talking to me? And she goes, well, not necessarily, just somebody on this planet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Or, yeah, I don't like this hotel. Can you take me to a different one? That was a good one. And the same guy, oh, bless his heart. So, again, we thicken liquids to make it safer, and we practice strategies with the thicker liquids so that they learn to be safe, and then we hopefully upgrade them back to thin. And this guy, we had been working with him every day, like, teaching him what had happened to him and what we were trying to work towards. And he calls me over at lunch. He's like, excuse me, I think there's something in this water that makes it thicker. And it's like, yep, that's the entire idea. <laughs> um, Didn't you tell me one time that there was this woman who was, like, so mad at you and then you, like, came back and apologized? She's like, what are you talking about? Yeah, that's happened a few times. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I remember who who you're talking about. Yeah, she she was really mad because the kitchen had made a mistake and given her a liquid that wasn't safe for her to have on her own. Um, and so I took it away. And she was like, you're fussy. Like, you're such a 
one woman called me a fuss fuss budget fuss budget which is like from the early 1900s but it means a fussy person and I was like I'm sorry I don't mean to be fussy I just need to keep you safe but she was all frustrated and asked me to leave and I came back an hour later and I was like I'm really sorry about that whole milk thing like I know that that was frustrating for you and she goes what milk thing (laughs) yeah um yeah, that is that is one advantage to dementia is you can't hold a grudge. Mm-hmm. Um, um, well, awesome! Thank you so much sure. for doing this. It's super interesting. Cool. I'm glad. That's the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. This is the Undefined Gen, a podcast about young people doing awesome things, and I'm your host, Marissa Comstock. I hope you learned a lot about a very important and specific part of healthcare, speech language pathology. Mara is super knowledgeable, and I absolutely love when I get to learn about something that I knew nothing about before. All right, see you next week. Bye, listeners. (laughs) 